What does it mean to live in a pluralistic society? And what would it look like to participate as a responsible citizen within one? Pluralism involves more than the simple existence of differences, religious, political, or cultural. How do we live alongside those who hold drastically different commitments from us without compromising our own deeply held beliefs? My name is Rachel Chang, and I'd like to welcome you to the Veritas Forum at the University of Chicago. The forum tonight is sponsored by Cana, Crew, the Christian Legal Society, Hyde Park Church, InterVarsity, Living Hope Church, the Lumen Christie Institute, Navigators Chicago, the Vineyard Church of Hyde Park, the Institute of Politics, the International House Global Voices Program, the Office of Spiritual Life, the Law School, the Martin Marty Center for the Public Understanding of Religion, the Department of Political Science, the St. Thomas More Society, the Seminary Co-op Bookstore, and the University of Chicago Press. Tonight's event is not a debate. We are not here to see people win or lose or score points off each other. Veritas is Latin for truth. So we're here tonight for a real discussion, connecting truth to our hardest questions and our deepest beliefs. We have asked our presenters to share personally, ask honest questions of each other, and model a conversation that all of us can continue this evening and beyond. Our hope is that everyone in this room would be challenged. The Veritas planning team aims to create events that are relevant, thought-provoking, and engaging to people of all backgrounds and beliefs. And to do that, we need your help. So at this time, please pick up your Veritas 60-second survey card that is located underneath your seat, along with a pencil, and take 15 seconds to fill out the top half of the front side of the card. And I'm gonna do that myself right now, too. We will only use your email address to send you a link to an online feedback site where you can share your thoughts about tonight's forum. And we really want your feedback, so please do sign up for that. We won't email you about anything else unless you check one of the boxes at the bottom of the card. After the conversation, please fill out the remaining sections of your survey card, both the front and the back side, and we'll have ushers collecting those cards um, at the end of the night. Just have two brief announcements. Um, first, if there are any gaps in the seats between you, which I don't think there are, but if you guys could just generally try to squish towards the middle, towards the front, in case there are late stragglers, it would be easier for them to sit, but I think we're pretty tight right now. Um, and second, would you please join me to silence your cell phone at this point in time, because the event tonight will be recorded, so it will be great if we don't have things going on in the background. And now I'd like to introduce our moderator for tonight's discussion, Professor Chiara Cordelli, to introduce our speakers and kick off tonight's forum. Dr. Cordelli is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science and the college at the University of Chicago. She has written on a variety of topics in political and moral philosophy, including the relationship between social justice and political legitimacy, the ethics of philanthropy, and the place of religion in liberal egalitarian theory. Dr. Cordelli is a co-editor of the book Philanthropy and Democratic Societies, published in 2017, and she has held research, visiting research positions at Princeton, Stanford, and Harvard University. 
We are honored to have the professor here with us tonight, so please join me in welcoming Dr. Cordelli. Thank you very much, Rachel, for this introduction, and also thank you. I want to thank the Veritas Forum for organizing and putting together such an exciting um, event and, and for inviting me here as a moderator. I'm delighted to be here and to have an opportunity to hear two very esteemed speakers discuss about very important and urgent questions about religion, pluralism, and politics. So, um, I will now want to introduce the speakers before we move to the actual discussion. So the, our first speaker is John Inazu, who's the Sally Danforth Distinguished Professor of Law and Religion at Washington University in St. Louis. He teaches criminal law, law and religion, and also various First Amendment seminars. His scholarship focuses on the First Amendment freedom of speech, assembly, and religion, and also related question of legal and political theory. He's the author of several books, including Liberty's Refuge, The Forgotten Freedom of Assembly, published by Yale University Press in 2012, and Confident Pluralism, Surviving and Thriving Through Deep Difference, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2016. Our other speaker is Ibu Patel, is the founder and the president of Interfaith Youth Corps, which is a national no-profit uh, um, organization that I think that partners with uh, uh, higher education institutions to foster, uh, foster actually pluralism understood as interfaith cooperation. And is the author of also many books, Acts of Faith, Sacred Ground, Interfaith Leadership, and out of many faiths. Ibu's recent academic work is helping to shape the emerging field of uh, interfaith studies, and is also a frequent speaker and guest lecturer at colleges and universities across the United States, which holds a doctorate in the sociology of religion from Oxford University, where he was uh, a Rhodes Scholar. So I want to actually follow up on Rachel's opening question for this night. So what does it mean to live in a pluralistic society? Maybe to just slightly narrow down the question, I just wanted to ask what is your somehow ideal, social ideal, for a healthy but also realistic form of pluralism in a often divided and conflictual society like contemporary um, American? We may think, I assume, of pluralism, you know, as uh, in very demanding way, as a form of almost civic friendship and cooperation among religions and religious and, and non-religious groups, but also very minimally as mere tolerance, almost like avoidance of each other. So what's your view of pluralism, your understanding of pluralism, and where does it fall in this spectrum somehow? Mm-hmm. Yeah. start? Sure. Um, I, I would, as a starting point, what pluralism is not, the French philosopher Rousseau said, it is impossible for men to live at peace with those he thinks are damned. And so pluralism has to reject that premise and say, no, we have to figure out a possibility, even across the biggest and most difficult differences. So part of the answer descriptively is naming authentically and accurately what our differences are and not pretending to paper over those differences. And then I, and I'll let Ibu run with this in a minute, but I also think 
uh, in some ways, and we might disagree a little bit on this, but in some ways it is a pretty low bar and a pretty low threshold so that tolerance looks a lot closer to a kind of endurance or coexistence than a kind of uh, idea where, I mean, in, especially in university campuses today, we sometimes hear tolerance mean acceptance and embrace of everything I am and what I believe. And that's actually, I think that's philosophically impossible, but it's also just not who we are as people. And so I, I think as a starting point, pluralism means a kind of endurance across difference. And then from there we can work up because I think as human beings, aspirationally, we can see each other as far more than some than people to endure, but, but, but people who we can actually see uh, more fully as human beings with whom we can learn and encounter and live together. That's the aspirational version, and then we'll complicate that, I'm sure. Uh, so you all are super somber, and we haven't even said that much. And so generally, John and I have been doing this together for some years now. People get somber like midway through. You all were somber at the beginning. It's cold out there. I know, right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this in three parts. To unsomber you a little bit, I'm going to begin with an animal story about pluralism. Then I'm going to do an abstract framework, and then I'm going to do a real-life example. Here's my animal story. I read this in Martin Marty's The One and the Many, and it's actually, I think, through Schopenhauer, but he said that uh, porcupines invented pluralistic civil society. Uh, one night, it was really, really cold, so the porcupines huddled together, and when they woke up, it was a bloodbath because their quills had pricked each other. Well, the next night, it was really, really cold, and they knew what had happened the night before, so they spread far apart. And they woke up, and some of them had died because they'd frozen to death. And the third night, they figured out how to get just close enough to give each other warmth without pricking each other to death. So because a fancy philosopher came up with that, I didn't sound like a fool telling you an animal story. But he, I actually think that that is a really interesting metaphor for civil society, which is to say, how can groups... How can individuals and groups with identities that are not just different, but that whose expression is sometimes a violation of the other identity? I'm going to say that again, right? The expression of some identities is a violation of other identities. Muslims, for religious reasons, slaughter vast quantities of goats, rams, and cows on Eid as a commemoration of God replacing uh, Ishmael on the rock with a ram. The taking of animal life in that way is a deep sacrilege to large quantities of Buddhists, Jains, and Hindus. What Muslims do as a virtual requirement of their faith is a deep violation of the essence of faiths which believe that any life created by God is sacred and should not be taken. Right? So how do you live in a society where it's not just uh, John likes Duke basketball and I wish the Illini would get back on track after like three decades of sucking, right? It's, it's a much more, it's much higher stakes than that. So at IFYC, our kind of abstract definition for, of pluralism, which is very close to John's confident pluralism, is respect for identity, which means that, that we know, I know that you are going to do things as a part of your identity that is a violation of my identity, and you have a right to do those things. So if you believe in a post 
in a figure that is, that is a revealer post the prophet Muhammad, you, get a right, you have a right to do that. Right? Even though as a Muslim, I believe that revelation stops with the prophet Muhammad. So respect for identity, whether I like it or not. Number two is relationships between different communities. And number three is a commitment to the common good. So my concrete example is I think U.S. hospitals get this pretty close to right just about all the time. And the reason I use a hospital as an example, like five blocks west of here, right, or three blocks west of here, is because there are lots and lots of entities where there are diverse religious identities in interaction, but where religious identity, it's, there isn't that much at stake, right? So on an athletic team, for example, typically there's not a ton at stake, right? But in a hospital, people are, people with different religions have different interpretations of what a particular ailment is. Somebody with uncontrollable shaking might be diagnosed in Western medicine as epileptic, but in the Hmong tradition might be viewed as being prepared for sh a shaman. Right? That's a different interpretation of the same physical condition. There are different interpretations of death. Typical Western definition, the brain scan goes flat, you're dead. That's not the case in, in some evangelical understandings and some Orthodox Jewish understandings and some Buddhist understandings, which is much closer to breath-based, right? So all of those things are in the mix over there three or four blocks away, and generally speaking, people make it work. Right? So, so I think that, that it, I'm an ethnographer. I'm, my, my big question isn't like what happens in Plato's ideal and, and, and uh, um, and can we go find cases for it? It's more like, show me something that works, and let's extract principles from that. Just maybe want to ask a question of clarification about this idea of respect for other people, identity, which I think relates to your understanding of endurance somehow. Because it seems that on the one end, pluralism for being a lasting project has to have a sort of psychological basis of a certain kind. I have to care enough about you and you have to care enough about me in order to just avoid being completely intolerant. But then as you say, my mere expression of identity, even a very well-intentioned one, no, I don't, I don't want to offend you, I just, I'm just going you know, about my daily business, but I can do something in order to express my own identity that offend you or deeply wound you. So, in this, in, 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 the conflict is very deep, and so how can in this situation of deep conflict, where this mere free expression of one's identity can offend others in a deep way, be compatible with the formation and maintenance of the sort of sociological, psychological basis that there seem to be essential to maintain mm -hmm. pluralism of, over time? And maybe you can provide example or from your experience or practices that could provide some solutions to this problem. Yeah. Right, no, it's a, it's a hard problem to address. It's, I think it begins with as much as we can working to separate people from the ideas they hold. And, and so as a Christian, I can say, I believe as a theological matter, every human being I encounter is, a, is created in the image of God, which then is a starting point for my interaction with that person. And hopefully, if I were a really good Christian, I could carry that all the way to every person I encounter. It becomes hard for me, and I think a lot of people at the limit. So if you, if you encounter the Nazi on the street, uh, which is no longer a hypothetical, right? There were Nazis on the street in Charlottesville, and, and there are 
uh, people who look back at you and say, I reject your humanity or your right to exist. How at that point do you separate the person from the idea? It's very hard to do, and I, I think I'm not maybe great at putting that into practice. But I also think that most of us are not Nazis, right? And most of us today in our political discourse quickly get to the point of thinking that somebody opposed to us is so evil that that line between ideas and in person is conflated. And I think that's actually not doing the hard work that we're called to do to, to make those distinctions. And I think for most people, when we think about how we interact at a place like this or with people who disagree with us, when we actually get down to it, we disagree about really important matters. And we think, we think that um, you know, if, if we had a long coffee with a lot of people in this room, we would find issues that we think uh, the other person is, is morally in error and deeply harmful and gravely, maybe even evil ways. And yet, we still work to see that person as a human being. And maybe we still carpool together or take classes together or find elements of common ground. And I think that, especially in, it seems like in today's society, that initial hard work is something that we can all strive to do better before we get to the limit cases. So there was an article in the New York Times a few weeks ago uh, about, um, it's not Srebrenica, what was it? It was Mostar, I think, the, a city in Bosnia and Herzegovina with, um, if, with a Muslim fire department and a Catholic fire department where Muslims go to school from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. and Catholics go to school from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. So literally, different civic Muslim nightclubs Catholic nightclubs. There is, it's not a hot conflict, right? There was a hot conflict in, in, uh, in the area 30 years ago in the mid-1990s. Um, not a hot conflict, but totally separate civic in civic recreational government institutions. What I think is the great genius of American life is that we have a set of civic and quasi-governmental institutions like schools that bring people from diverse backgrounds together in, in ways in which the common good is extremely concrete and practical. So raising money for, for the lab school, if you're part of the lab school, you can disagree on a whole range of things, right, on really, really weighty matters, but you're going to participate in that fundraising effort. Uh, an athletic team, a hospital, like I said, I think is, is, is for me the most interesting example because cosmic identity issues are at play all the time, right? Like th this person, you know, person in room 12A is an organ donor and when that person passes away, uh, we need to make sure to get that, we need to see if the heart can be tran transported over there, right? Well, person in bed 12B is a Muslim and she believes if she is not buried within 24 hours or so of dying, her soul will not go to heaven. And you have a medical staff who is taking care of those opposing views. My organs should be used to keep somebody else alive. If my organs are removed from my body, my soul doesn't go to heaven, right? You have a medical staff who's taking care of those at the very least different in some cases opposing views, who also have identities at stake, right? Who also have a view on, view on what happens to a soul after it dies. Who, who should be an organ, we should have more Asian American organ donors, uh, et cetera, et cetera, because uh, um, 
because of the special needs of that population. I just made that up. I, I know that that's the case when it comes to, to, to blood donation. Uh, you see what I'm saying? So the fact that those issues are alive in that practical setting, but there are enough things that keep people focused on common practice, uh, I, think that, I think that that is, if you were to transport a human being from three or 4,000 years ago and show them a typical urban or suburban American hospital and just list off the different language, ethnic, religious, racial, national groups present, I just think that they would be absolutely astounded. Like, are you kidding me? These people aren't all killing each other over some blood feud. They're instead saving people's lives together, right? So I, I think that that is, I, I, I think that that's a huge part of the American genius and actually a double part of that is that a good number of those hospitals were started by single religious communities. In some cases, because people from those faith communities, Jewish Hospital in Louisville, right, a variety of Catholic hospitals, were not getting properly served because of a particular prejudice of an era. So they built a hospital to take care of the needs of a population that was experiencing prejudice. And that hospital went from a place whose initial mission was to serve largely Jews or Catholics to a place that has become remarkably plural with very, very little tension along the way. Okay, so but you've done this move twice now, and I want to push you a little bit here. You've, you've started with local examples and discrete institutions, the hospital or the lab school. And in both of those cases, you can, I'm not, I'm not sure you want to call it the common good in some cosmic sense, but you can find common ground in the efforts needed to save lives or to educate students. But then my question is, can we scale this up? As a political matter, pluralism is a, is a real challenge for us as a country right now. And how do you, I mean, you might be able to sustain your diverse community focused around fundraising at the lab school, but what about the school five miles away that is underserved and under-resourced? And are, are, those, are those people also your neighbor and part of the pluralistic experience, or is that for them to figure out? And what do we do when we move outside of Chicago to the state of Illinois or to the country as a whole? Is it, is it scalable or, or is the pragmatic focus on the local only ad hoc and case by case? So there's, it depends what you, so one reference point of what's happened in the last two, two years in America <clears throat> is that racism is rampant, um, uh, misogyny is rampant, it's in the White House, all of which I believe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And, and how could we have, turn the clock, how could we be living in the cultural stone age after all the progress we supposedly made? Um, the second way to think about it is we had a political revolution and almost nobody fired a shot. With, by, by which I mean to say that we take so much for granted in the United States when it comes to stability, when it comes to uh, wake up and go to work the next day when it comes to um, uh, how we expect daily life to go that in a way we don't realize the miracle we live in, right? And so I, I, one way to think, this doesn't mean things can't get better, but the fact that we have a common school district called Chicago Public Schools and that there is a common body which discusses funding for them by which a significant amount of our 
deliberation about how that school system should go, I think is, is what if we started by saying this is in itself an astounding step forward. How do we make it better? And if the reference point, I'll say this again, is Mostar, which is if you're a Muslim and, and the Muslims at the Muslim fire department aren't there that day, the Catholic fire department's not going to show up, right? The point that I'm making is, is that's, that, if that's the reference point for how most of, of I, most identity communities and most of human history have functioned, as opposed to a diverse and, and intertwined participatory democracy, I think we look at the current, we begin from a different place. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it here with this thought though, but I, I do, I, I share many of your aspirations, but I wonder if we're presupposing quite a bit about who the we is right now in American society. So there are zip codes in this city, for example, where if you called the fire department or called the police department, they might not show up. And so what does it mean when, and that might not be a religiously based difference, but when you have a lack of access to basic resources, or is the we really encompassing of the pluralistic experience in the United States, or is it to a subset of people who look a lot like you and me, for, where for all of our differences, we have quite a bit in common in terms of our education, our social mm -hmm. class, and other sorts of things. So it seems like a, as a political matter, the, the more we nuance who the we is in this country, the harder the question gets. Yes, so and, as you've written about really uh, powerfully, your grandfather was in an internment camp. And you're on stage at the University of Chicago. And my grandparents would not have been able to come to this country because of racist immigration policies between 1882 and 1965. So in, in a way, part of what we're kind of arguing about is which story, what's the narrative frame that in which we are speaking, right? And I think that um, what I want to put on the table for discussion purposes, in part, I mean, like, honestly, you and I could do this tomorrow night. Actually, we might be doing it tomorrow night for all we know. And we could just literally switch characters, right? Because part of what we're doing is, is a set of mental exercises. What I want to put on the table is what does it look like to view what, what, what we are thinking about as a narrative of progress and asking what's the next step instead of a narrative that is somehow um, uh, a narrative of loss or deficiency. Um, there's better words for that. In, in, uh, in a narrative of progress, right? Um, and. I, so much of this is what's your reference point. So if you read Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari, and your reference point begins with like 20,000 years ago, and how most of humankind lived for most of human history, then you think of a diverse democracy and what we have created here is, I mean, this is like literally God's miracle to think that people from different religious communities with different views on where the soul goes after it dies, different ideas of where to draw the line in the Middle East or when a life begins are performing heart surgery right now and saving somebody's life. Right, so that, that is not a statement. I mean, 
you know me, right? Like that's not a statement of complacency. That is a question of how do we frame the place that we are, how do we understand the place that we are in in order to get to the place where we would like to go? Since you mentioned the case of hospitals and the case of the lab school, um, I want to remain on the local level and ask a question about the University of Chicago and what is uh, you know, the role of universities. The University of Chicago, of course, is just one, but in participating in this project of continuously building uh, you know, this thing called uh, pluralism. And I'm wondering for two reasons. I mean, first, we might think, and I don't know what, I want to know what you think about, there might be different things that can be done or should be done depending on the ethos of a university. So there are universities like Notre Dame with strong religious ethos. The University of Chicago has always praised itself for more, you know, sort of neutral, very strong defense of free speech. and so. It, do different universities have different maybe obligations or different responsibilities when it comes to pluralism? And also wanted to also, if you have some idea about, as someone who teach political theory, political philosophy, sometimes I have to teach really hard questions like abortion, gay rights, and this question that are very divisive in the classrooms. So I just wanted to ask, do you think teachers and you know, in a university in particular, should be allowed to bring their religious beliefs or not, of course, forcing religious belief on others, but to bring their religious perspective as a way of framing maybe the issues they talk about. Should the university be a place for these sorts of exchanges or should be more a neutral mm -hmm. sort of mm -hmm. sphere? Really, yeah, so Ibu and I taught a class uh, just last year <coughs> on pluralism in the university and it was a great class to teach and a lot of these kinds of questions come up. One of them, I think, is what is the nature of the institution and what does it, in terms of its own purpose and values, what does it allow or disallow in terms of the debate on pluralism? I do think, as a general matter, though, in a place like this one, that we, we want to work hard to dialogue authentically across deep differences because if we can't figure it out in a place like this, I'm really worried for the, for the rest of the country. I mean, you're, you're in a place where you're around a group of people for several years, hopefully with faculty who are guiding you through really good and hard questions, and you're, you are relatively speaking safe and well off, so you have your basic needs met to have these conversations. And if you can't figure out and, and with guidance and help, with the luxury of time and, and this location, how to do this, then it's not gonna get easier in the next phase of life or, or, or when other challenges come along. So I do think this is a tremendous opportunity, you know, at places like yours and mine and others to have this enterprise of, of common engagement and dialogue and teaching. And then I think from the faculty side, I think a good teacher is going to ask hard questions and push as an educational matter to get people to think critically across a range of issues. I don't, I don't think we should overemphasize this kind of detached neutrality though because we all bring our own baggage into the classroom and it's, I think it's impossible, whether you're religious or not, impossible to distance yourself from your own set of normative commitments and beliefs. And so the best we can do is be really good at teaching well and having a community around us to hold us accountable to, to these kinds of questions and standards. And I find, even though I have very clear views and commitments on a lot of issues that are controversial and so forth. I, I think I've done 
successful teaching when it's not clear exactly what my view is on a particular matter because my point in a certain class is not to convince someone of the correct constitutional policy, it's to help someone argue both sides of a really hard issue. And so I, I think there are ways to do it, but I don't always think we rise to the occasion as much as we could. Yeah. So the, the best book on this is his book, Confident <laughs> Pluralism, my favorite book on this. And, and here's, here's what I love about John's book, right, is that he says um, when if uh, in the case, for example, of Hastings College of Law, Christian Legal Society case, right, um, uh, Hastings College of Law, I'm, I'm, correct me when I get the sides wrong on this, uh, a particular Christian organization, which people here belong to, right, said it is part of our identity to have these kinds of doctrinal commitments, right, including on sexual practice. And the law school said you have to allow people from a, a range of identities, including sexual identities, to be part of your organization at every level. Am I getting the the basic deck right here? More or less. There was also okay. a religious exclusivity provision that said you have to be Christian to be part of this group. So oh. a, a Muslim or a Jew could not be part of it. So, so doctrinal requirements that, that, that yeah, it involved a range of things, including, uh, including sexual practice. And the, the court, the Supreme Court rules in favor of the law school and says the law school can tell a a, an identity group uh, that, that it can't have those kinds of identity requirements effectively, right? And John's point is, if you want a pluralistic society, you want a range of identity groups to be able to flourish. And why doesn't Christian legal society get to be, uh, um, get to, get to be its own identity, right? Uh, I hold with that and I think that there are some interesting challenges. So for example, there are often multiple Christian organizations. In fact, I, I feel like there were you know, 30 people at dinner earlier and like there were 22 Christian organizations represented. <laughs> That's nice. Um, uh, but what happens if you have, there are many smaller colleges where there's only a single Muslim student group and what happens if uh, it doesn't allow Shias? Right? So you could, Hastings College of Law, and if I was the president of Hastings College of Law, I would say Christian Legal Society gets to be Christian Legal Society, but I get to hire a vice chancellor of student affairs that is going to proactively help gay Christians find a place for, to be open, happy, safe, out gay Christians. Right? So you get to be who you are. You have all the rights and privileges of citizenship, but I'm going to put my thumb, a thumb on the scale over here for these folks. Right? That's how I would respond to it. But what do you do with a smaller group, the eight Muslims at the Hastings College of Law, and let's say uh, there's a, you know, we don't, we don't have Shia imam, we don't, we don't invite Shia khatibs, uh, we won't pray behind a Shia imam, and Shias can't run for the presidency. And by the way, there's two Shias on this campus, right? I think that that's a, for me, that's a really interesting and challenging situation because there isn't a practical solution. And I'm always, you know, I'm a nonprofit guy. I'm an ethnographer. I'm always looking for the practical, like, like we, we, don't, let's not argue about it in theory. Sorry, UFC folks, right? 
Where does it work in practice? It, pluralism works in practice in hospitals, right? Where does, where does it work in practice? Having said that, and this is something I think we also agree on, I think that we think that there is great danger for a coercive authority, whether it's the state at the high end of coercive authority, you know, with police and military powers and taxation powers, to a university to intervene in an identity group, right? And to say this, this is how this is how you have to, this is how you have this is how you have to be. Um, I think it is broadly a strength of American democracy. In fact, I think it's the genius of American democracy that identity groups start associations that sometimes build themselves into civic institutions that make a significant contribution to the United States. So I actually have a Notre Dame story which John is sick of hearing, but I think you might enjoy because you just mentioned Notre Dame. I'm sure I will. So uh, you know, I'm in I'm in this country because of Notre Dame because Notre Dame lets uh, admits my dad, this kind of wayward, smiley Muslim immigrant from India, to its MBA program in the mid 1970s. Right? That's that's how my family comes to this country, and in my like you know kind of a politically radical phase of my life. Uh, I'm kind of railing against, you know, like how white and Catholic Notre Dame is. And it's like 90% white and 90% Catholic, right? And I'm like, you know, did these people not get the diversity memo, da, 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 like this whole, this whole thing, right? And at some point, my dad stops me. He's like, hey, they didn't have to let me in. And I was like, well, actually, you're right, right? This is a university started by French Catholic priests in 1831, and the Indiana countryside for the principal mission of nurturing young Catholic boys in its tradition. Didn't have to let them in, right? And it did. And I actually think that that's a really interesting set of, what do, how do we understand I, in, civic institutions founded by identity groups that, initially started with the principal purpose as the continuity of identity. So I'll give you a concrete, challenging case. Um, what's the name of the uh, adoption agency in South Carolina? What's the, anybody know this case? Mars Hill, something like that. So there's an adoption agency in South Carolina that by all accounts does great work in helping kids from tough backgrounds find foster care and get adoption. And uh, one of the questions they ask is, what church do you go to? And if it's not one of the right churches, you don't get considered. And there's a lawsuit filed by a woman who goes to a Catholic church, not one of the right churches, and she says, I'm a perfectly fit foster parent. How come they're not allowing me to be a part of, of this ecosystem, this family? And the response by the adoption agency is, we are an arm of a church, and part of what we do is identity continuity for the church. It's not a general social service. How should we think about that? Are, and I'm not just talking in a legal framework. I'm saying, is this a virtue in a plural civil society? Is it a virtue? Is it a civic good that that there is an adoption agency who views its mission as twofold, helping kids find loving families and being a, a continuity 
branch of a church, which is to say we want Protestant grandchildren in this way, and this is part of how we make sure that happens. Is it a civic good? Yes, I mean, whether it's a civic good or not probably depends upon your theory of what, what's good and your cost-benefit analysis in some ways, but I think that um, there are plenty of faith-based organizations that would actually be the opposite, right? And they would say, big tent, like we're here to serve the public and a, a broader public. And, and so as, as important as your question is, another equally important question is when government authorities misconstrue what their premise of what religion is in the first place. So another example to give you from a different state is, is a state legislature that tried to enact laws governing uh, a whole s a sphere of nonprofits, but they wanted to exempt churches, but they said, by church we mean only people that serve their own flock completely, which, which misses the core identity of a lot of uh, evangelicals and Catholics and others who want to say, actually our whole point in being here is to welcome other people in. So we, we're not, we're not going to exist until, I mean, <laughs> we're here to evangelize, right? And we only do that when people come through the door. And so that the, the character of the institution itself is outward facing and it's not just the four corners of the church, but it's what you do outside of the church. It's what you do engaging with others, inviting people in. And so in that, in that context, I think we, we can over-describe in the other direction, right? And assume that a whole lot of church-based people are just insular, uh, when in fact, I think we might find that quite a few of the social service uh, sector and the institutions that populate that sector are actually quite uh, expansive in terms of who they serve. The ho you gave the hospital example, so many of the religious hospitals that are not saying you can only come in here for uh, cardiac treatment if you're you know, of a particular denomination. That doesn't happen. And, and so there's a, in the other direction, I think there's a there's probably far greater examples of those entities that are willing to be open arms. Uh, and, and so going back to your original question, if it were the case that we had a whole lot of these adoption agencies that were shutting down the adoption resources in a particular state, that might be a real concern. I, I, I see that as mostly a thought experiment and not what actually happens in most, in most states. And, and I think one of your earlier questions, Kiara, is, is why doesn't it happen, right? And I think one response to that is the civic response that we've given, but you use the word psychological, right? Which is, are there psychological modes, uh, which is to say, not necessarily part of a civic institution, not, not the kind of um, uh, common, practical common good plus medical ethics of a hospital, right? Like, I, like if, if I'm a heart surgeon and, and voted for Hillary, uh, and you're a heart surgeon and voted for Trump, medical ethics does not allow me to say, I won't, I won't do heart surgery with you. Like, there, there's actually a set of rules on this kind of stuff, right? But what about in, indiv what, is, what is it that governs individual relationships? So I'll give you uh, my favorite example of this is uh, my wife and I go out to dinner and uh, we're running out the door at seven o'clock at night, babysitter comes in and I yell up to my kids and say, don't forget to pray before bed. Okay, my kids are 8 and 11, and they don't really like praying before bed, right? So do I tell the babysitter, make sure my kids pray before bed? Do you see what I'm saying? Like in the same way I would say, make sure my kids eat their fruit tonight, and I would expect the babysitter to do that. Why do I think it is a reasonable expectation to say to my babysitter, make sure my kids eat their fruit tonight or clear their plates. But I would not say to her, I'm talking like, what is my psychological disposition? 
I would not say to the babysitter, make sure my kids pray. And then I go another step and I say, what, what if I did say that? Right? I looked at the babysitter and I said, just make sure they do it. And my babysitter said, what religion are you? And I said, we're Ismaili. I'm an Ismaili Muslim. My kids are Ismaili Muslims. My wife is a Sunni Muslim. And the babysitter said, I'm Catholic and I can't do that. Like, I, I'm happy to babysit for you and keep your kids safe, but I will not be uh, a party to, I'm not casting aspersions on, I'm just saying, let's just say Catholic or Jewish or whatever, not Muslim, okay? Uh, or, make it more interesting, sorry, I'm a Sunni Muslim and I'm not going to help, I'm not going to facilitate your kids saying a form of Muslim prayer that I, I think is invalid which is the Ismaili Dua, right? So that is not a civic institution. That is a personal relationship. And it could happen 80% of the time a babysitter comes to the door of a family. Make sure my kids pray. Why isn't it a common problem or some versions of this, right? And, and I think it's because generally speaking, there are modes of behavior in which, depending on the locale, we front dimensions of identity and we de-emphasize dimensions of identity. Well, so that's a pretty positive spin on the thought experiment, but I'm wondering, what about... What did you expect the, me to do? <laughs> the eternal optimist, <laughs> yes. Um, but what about the... I mean, another way to think about that exact scenario is maybe you are more influenced by your American identity or your upper middle class Chicago identity than you are by your Muslim identity. I, I knew the yuppie thing was gonna come out. Has it been an hour yet? Uh, in the same way that I think a lot, of, uh, a lot of American Christians are more influenced by the American part than the Christian part. And when it comes to the demands, I mean, so another way to think about your scenario is maybe if you can't, and I'm not trying to, create the whole story around your own faith commitments, but maybe it's if you can't find the babysitter that's going to pray with your kids, you don't go out because your religious identity and commitments trump the whatever it is that, that would take you out to have the non-religious babysitter there. Or to, t to put it in, a, in, in the other direction, the evangelical kid whose soccer practice or soccer game commits with, conflicts with church maybe decides, I don't get to play in that game. Do you because, do that? Do I do that? Yeah. Uh, thanks for putting me on the spot. <laughs> you no, just put me on the spot. I know, I know. Um, so, yes, I mean, but with the quick caveat that oh, I'm trying, this is being recorded. My kids are, um, <laughs> I love, my kids are, are re really wonderful and gifted in lots of dimensions, not necessarily including Prayer. all sports. No sports. Oh, okay. <laughs> so. Um, I thought you were going to be like, we're great on the soccer field. <laughs> prayer. No, 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 we. No, no. <laughs> but uh, so the point is, it, it may be, <laughs> it costs me a lot less to say, <laughs> um, you can't go to the basketball game because we're going to church. Because maybe in my context, the game just doesn't mean as much. But if my kid were on a select team, the pressure might be greater. But I think the, so, so we do say, we're not going to, you, you can't play in the basketball game because we have church. But we could, uh, we could go through a whole other series of, I mean, do we go on the family vacation? in this church? The answer is yes, right? In the summer we will. Um, and so is that prioritizing uh, the American ideal of family vacations above church? Maybe. I mean, it's a, I think it's an, a question worth 
raising. Uh, I find that a lot of, in my Christian circles, a lot of people are willing to bow to all kinds of other demands and commitments except for the ones that the church asks of them. So I will miss youth group if I've got a test the next day, or I will miss church because of the game, or I will, I mean, if, if the sports team says I've got to sign a contract to be part of the team, I'm all in. But if the church says commit to us, it's harder. And so I, I do think um, probably in a lot of contexts, we, as much as we would like to say our faith identities lead our decision-making, sometimes it's the other way around. And maybe it's just a cop-out for me to say we skip the sports games because it's not a high cost to, to my family. So I've been thinking about a part of this a lot, right, which is, um, so there's a, a, I've got a couple of friends of, at, at NYU, um, uh, the imam uh, and the rabbi there, and they take their students to New Orleans and they do this service trip, right, and the Jews uh, like they make it a kosher kitchen and they have to w- wash out all the pots with boiling hot water and clean the kitchen in a particular way. And the Muslims are like, man, you all are hardcore, <laughs> right? And the next day, the alarms go off at like 4.30 in the morning and the Muslims are up for Fajr prayer and the Jews are like, you all are hardcore, right? And um, my friend Yehuda and... Uh, Holla, they're like telling the story with pride, right? And I'm like, yeah. And, and I have, just, why is it good to be hardcore? And what I mean by that is, is there a different and equally good way of understanding Christian commitment that would include not going to church for other goods at certain times? Well, I mean, the answer, I, I think, has to be yes, or else we're into utter legalism, right? If there's, if there's no counterfactual, right, you, you have to go to church even at the cost of saving your neighbor's life. No, right? So there, there's going to be some, some, some examples there. But I think probably the challenge for, I don't know, a lot of American Christians is exactly the opposite, which is, which is what is the cost, right? What is your faith costing you? It's, I think it's a lot... Um, that question is easier to answer in places where your ability to practice your religion in public means that you could be arrested, right, or could face death. And I think in the American context, probably because largely of our Protestant cultural heritage, it's, it's a little too easy sometimes to function as a Christian. I think it's probably, it's probably harder to pull this off as, as a Muslim in America. And certainly, if outwardly you're, you're identifying or visibly showing yourself as a Muslim today. Um, so I, I think the, the, the idea of a, a faith that is less hard is probably not the challenge for a lot of American Christians today. I, I, I'm trying to, I mean, this is the first time I'm like putting my finger on this question, right? So it's not coming out exactly right. But, but um, I guess what I'm wondering is, is, is you pose, you're saying my, the American identity by which you mean this set of other things that we do, take tests, go to music classes, go on vacation, go to uh, uh, play sports, et cetera, et cetera, that wins nine out of 10 times over Christian identity, which is going to church, 
right? That, that's, well, that's Christian identity is a lot more than going to church. That's right. just one discrete example, right? But, but, what, but in, in, the, in the game of like time, like doing X versus Y, Okay. I guess what I am wondering, I'm wondering this out loud, right? Because this has been a, a very significant debate in you know, Muslim circles for the last couple of decades, right? Which is basically, um, uh, how much are you willing to sacrifice for your faith? Which is similar to the language that you used. And an interesting other way to think about it is, how much does your, how much does your faith adapt by which I don't want to add a value judgment there, right? But, but how much does your faith adapt to different contexts? Mm-hmm. And so I'm part of a, uh, of a tariqah in Islam, the Ismaili tariqah, for which adaptation is a part of the tradition. And what the, the imam of the time will say is, uh, if you are not able to come to Jamaat Khanna, if you're not able to come to congregational prayers, take your thusbi out and pray the names of pray the name of God, or the Prophet, or the Imams, and it's I'm realizing something about one of my own psychological dispositions, which is until not very long ago, I kind of would dismiss this as as uh, um, this is uh, this is a way that that I can get away with things, right? That 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 other values and commitments in my life frequently come above going to congregational prayers as opposed to thinking this is actually a part of the genius of the tradition which is that it adapts to different times and places and that's not unique to the Ismaili tradition that other traditions, Methodist circuit riders during westward expansion were like, you know what, doesn't have to be a building, we come to you, right? And, and the reason I bring all of this up is because part of the American genius is identity communities change in adaptation to changing civic realities, much of which has to do with diversity. Yeah, but sort of, I mean, yes, but, right? I mean, that also led to the institutional legitimization of slavery by the American white church, for example, right? We're just adapting to the context. Some things are the, bad, so, yes. So there are, there, are, there are very bad applications yes. of, that, of that principle. Um, but I also think that uh, in part of my understanding of Christian faith is about formation and lived practices, and that is going to require and intentionality around both your own practices and how you transfer those to your kids and the rest of your community. And if, if so yes to some adaptation, but if you're always adapting or if you're always fudging the rules, then it's hard to know how to make a lasting impression of the practices on your relevant community. So I will give you, again, I hate that this is recorded, but I will confess to you in this, in this crowd that Lent is always a time in my life when I'm kind of glad to remind myself that I'm not Catholic, and I don't actually have to do Lent fully in that way, and I don't have to give something up. And, uh, and you know, maybe my better self would just give up uh, something more costly during Lent as a reminder of what that liturgical season is. And I, and I try to focus very deliberately on that, on that time of the calendar year, and yet I'm not giving something up. And 
there's part of me that thinks if I were more intentional about giving something up or instantiating that, that it would probably be more uh, meaningful to my life. But I have a long way to go. And just as a very silly, sad example of how far I have to go, I, I did one year successfully uh, give up drinking bourbon for Lent. And that was the time period when I uh, learned about scotch. And so, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think that I still have... I still have a, a ways to go in that particular <laughs> spiritual practice. Okay. I think it's I wasn't time supposed to, to laugh at that. I'm a Muslim and this is recorded. So. Yeah. I think it's time to open up the discussion to, with a Q&A to your questions. There should be uh, a mic here so you can maybe lift your hand if you have a question or comment. Or Um, thank you so much. This was really, uh, really thought-provoking and enlightening. I guess I'm wondering a little bit, um, Dr. Inazu made reference to certain uh, religious groups that see it as part of their mission to be outward-focused and expansive. And I'm wondering what your perspectives are on, for example, Christian ideals of evangelization in a pluralistic society. Is this something that's, because it's uncomfortable for some people, we should be more self-conscious about how we do it, or is it something that a pluralistic society kind of fosters? What is its place, or what is its? What do you see as um, the balance, I guess, between trying, like, believing something so deeply that you want to share it with other people, and yet also being very respectful of the freedom and the um, the different opinions of others? Yeah, that's a great question, and this this gets to it. There are, there are versions of pluralism that will say essentially, that, that are grounded in a kind of relativism. Let you be you and let me be me and we'll figure out how just to coexist. The kind of pluralism that I think we're advocating for is stronger than that, and it has to allow for the possibility of persuasion. And so my preference is for persuasion over coercion, but definitely to allow for persuasion. So, uh, you know, a lot of, I was having a discussion with an atheist friend of mine about our differences, and in his view, all of the differences were just good. They made life more interesting, our, our sports differences or our food differences. But when we got to the difference of belief in God or not belief in God, that's not a difference that I think as a Christian is a good thing. And so I want to be able to persuade, right? And I want, I mean, Ibu and I have lots in common, and I would be delighted if he became a Christian. I mean, we don't actually have that discussion, right? Good luck. Good luck, yes. But, you know, but I've got, you know, transcendent resources on my side. So we're not done yet. Um, <laughs> But, but I think, um, so, you know, in a, in a very serious way, these differences matter, right? And, and it's not like we're pretending that we're just going to uh, exist in a state of only talking about the things we agree on and avoiding the differences. But it also means we don't always lead with the differences. And I think, so to your question of versions of faith that are evangelistic, I mean, be, be smarter and wiser about how you do it, right? You're, you're not in a culture anymore where you can just kind of stand on the street and shout your call to repentance. That's just not going to be very effective for one. And so uh, can you understand context and friendships and relationships in a way that, uh, you know, start a conversation and, and, and where that conversation goes is sometimes beyond you. But as a, as a cultural or legal matter, I think absolutely you, we have to protect the space, not just to hold our own views, but to dialogue and, and work to persuade across difference. Thanks to the three of you for being here tonight. Uh, my question is, uh, what in your experiences have been uh, the greatest stiflers of fruitful 
uh, pluralism and perhaps the most insidious of them that are difficult to uh, really pinpoint. You wanna start? So, I, I think in the, in the circles in which I run, which are lar largely higher ed progressive diversity circles, uh, the idea that there's only one definition of social justice and that when somebody mentions the word social justice, everybody in the room nods and knows what it means with, without a recognition that, oh boy, you know, different identities a Catholic and a Reformed Jew are likely to have two different definitions of justice in the question of abortion, right? So the idea that, that there's only one definition of justice and that there are only certain identities which are, which are welcomed to be registered only in certain ways, right? So while I am, I would describe myself as a diversity progressive, I. I dislike that when it becomes an orthodoxy that suffocates others. I, I would like it to be a view that is in conversation with other views, right? Which is why I think that Christian Legal Society should be allowed to be at the Hastings College of Law and as a diversity progressive, if I was the dean of that college or the president, I would hire a vice chancellor of student affairs who had his or her thumb on the scale for gay Christians, right? So you get to exist. I want to make sure that these people feel open, uh, affirmed, supported, and free. We live in a broader society that's still pretty homophobic. And then I would come to a really challenging question around, for example, a Hindu or a Hindu group that said, you know, we're basically for Brahmins or a Muslim group that says we're basically only for Sunnis because you don't have the practical option of, hey, let's just have three of these, right? Having said that, frankly, I think it is, it's not illegitimate for, uh, for a Muslim group to say this is for a certain kind of Muslim because this is what we believe Islam is. Right, so part of the challenge of this is respect for identity is, I mean, it's, it stops at Nazis, right? But generally speaking, it says, yeah, you get to have that view of Islam. I disagree with it, but, but you get to be a Salafi, right? And it's, it doesn't come from nowhere. Like, it's got a proud history. Do you see what I'm talking about, right? And, and that view excludes others, but what else is in identity community except a community that says this is what it means to belong and this is, and other people don't, right? And I think that part of the challenge of kind of diversity progressivism right now, which I say as a, a broadly speaking, as a part of that broad worldview is it's, um, it's challenge with the recognition that there's a range of legit identities that fall outside of its general purview. Um, and that part of the definition of identity community, and I'd be interested in any disagreement or discussion on this, is some people belong and other people don't. I would maybe expand the point too, just to say that the, the problem of echo chambers exists across the board. It's, it's ideologically neutral in that sense and that there are echo chambers everywhere. And I find the pluralism discussion hard when somebody just assumes he or she knows the entire landscape and isn't open to alternative views. And this, of course, is exacerbated on social media. So one of the massive challenges to 
the experiment of pluralism is Twitter, right? It's going to get worse unless we figure out alternative ways to communicate with people who are different and if we avoid the caricatures and the quick dismissals of really complex people and complex issues. And then I'll also say that in speaking sometimes to primarily Christian audiences, I find a massive impediment to pluralism is just this fear narrative, this, this, this worry that the big bad secular university is gonna corrupt your kids or that right, if, you, if you find yourself in the presence of Muslims, somehow your faith will be shattered. And it, it, um, I don't know where this, where this comes from exactly, but it's out there and it's, um, it's out there quite strongly in some parts of the country. And it, it seems completely antithetical to how I understand the gospels and the Christian message, right? And Jesus going to places of lots of diversity and lots of um, uh, places where, where you won't always certain who you're gonna find or what the situation would be like. And so it seems to me that Christians of all people should be leading the way into some of those spaces and instead we have a, a fear narrative that's governing a lot of our communities. And at the risk of saying too much on this, I, I, I think that uh, uh, this is apropos of where we are, right? Um, so much of what I do wrong right now on Twitter or on, on my blog, uh, I think to myself, like my PhD advisor told me to never do this, right? And what I mean by that is I actually think that a really good cure to much of the disease that John talks about, which is echo chambers, uh, um, uh, homogenous thought bubbles, et cetera, is good academic practice. What do I mean by that? Gather reasonable amounts of representative evidence, right? Never assume correlation is causal. Do not assign in intentions to the people that you're studying. Don't tell them why they did what they did. Be extremely suspicious of the intentions they assign to their own actions. Be enormously judicious about coming to conclusions. Do not study the world. Do not tell people you're studying the world and instead report on your worldview. Right? Like, like basic things that, that people learn at universities. Here is how you find representative evidence. Here is how you are very careful about conclusions. Here is how you use language in a way that's enormously judicious. These basic things, I think, are extreme. Like, I, I think to myself, like, what my PhD advisor was in love with a soft version of Karl Popper. Karl Popper said that as the only way to, to prove your theory is to proactively be looking for cases that contradict it. You can't prove a theory by finding additional cases of its existence, right? So as soon as you have a, have a worldview or a theory of the world, you have to be on the hunt for things that contradict it as opposed to more cases that illustrate it, right? Like, though, like basic, you learn this in your second year at the University of Chicago in any research-oriented class. Like in my mind, I'm like, how is it that I'm making these mistakes? Like my advisor was like, here's how you don't get a doctorate at Oxford, right? <laughs> Thank you very much for the talk. It was uh, very uh, informative. Um, I just have a question also kind of jumping off the uh, discussion of social media. Um, one thing I'm thinking about when I'm looking and reading like news reports, different uh, newspapers, is the way that stories are framed. So for example, the New York Times reporter Dan Levin recently put on Twitter a feed based 
based on the hashtag expose Christian schools to try to get reports and responses from people that have attended Christian schools what their experiences were like. And he said this was a neutral thing, and in his final report, he published nine stories that were both positive and negative. But the hashtag itself that he used to gather the stories is, connotes very negative things about Christian schools. And there are other framing effects like Covington Catholic School and so on and so forth. So how exactly should we, we be thinking about the framing? How exactly should we be counteracting that as citizens in a more pluralized society as media is more and more widespread? Yeah, that's a, it's a hard question. Um, I, I suppose I would start with don't give up on the very good journalists who are out there. So right now, the media as an institution is under siege. And this is true of you know your startup blog all the way to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And uh, in terms of revenue models and institutional health, uh, the media is in trouble. And embedded in that media, there are bad actors and good actors. But there are a lot of really good journalists, including ones that would maybe disagree with you on a lot of fundamental matters. And I think the one worry I have is that the increasing partisan nature of social media and how we experience the media castigates a lot of journalists all to the bad. And one thing we need to be doing now is finding the good journalists, even the ones we disagree with, and saying you're doing good work and figuring out how to support them, because it's an important part of our civic experiment. Having said that, there are examples of, I think, journalists that either act in bad faith or unthinkingly uh, purport to do a nuanced, unbiased story that actually reflects tremendous bias. And so there I think there's an educational effort, there, there are ways to have competing voices out there to counter some of the effects. But I think in general, uh, you know, when you see a hashtag, for example, that doesn't seem neutral or seems unfair or biased, probably the next step is not to respond with the hashtag or anywhere else on social media, but just to get off and do something more productive. <laughs> One of the things that I, I wish I did more of um, is regularly read writers who I disagree with and admire and think are, think are smart. Actually, I think, thought about this. like I, The Covington Catholic Native American elder thing happened, and I quickly dashed off a blog that basically represented my worldview and not the world. I saw 90 seconds of video and I came to a conclusion about like large swaths of people known as privileged white Catholic kids from conservative areas that I was perfectly happy doing everything my PhD advisor told me not to do and dashing off an 800 word blog on that, right? And um, I read David French on that situation and he said something uh, that I thought to myself, I, I, I should be reading this kind of stuff much more often. He said, I have been in dozens of, he said, I found it extremely suspect that a group of, Catholic, a group of Catholic boys from a Catholic prep school in this part of Kentucky would go rogue like that on a school field trip. Why? Because I've been in dozens of, gyms watching my kids compete in athletics in this part of the country, and that's not how these schools roll. And what struck me about that is because I'm generally speaking part of the broad diversity progressive paradigm, I was in instinctively willing to assign negative intentions to a group of kids, not only who I've never met, but whose culture, whose like broader communities, I don't have any kind of palpable sense of touch with. Right? So it was really interesting to me to, to come into contact with a writer who's like, 
I know these worlds. I'm not a racist. And by the way, this is what you are saying about these kids is very out of character from what I have observed. That doesn't mean it didn't happen, but, but you know, just like if, if, if somebody's like, man, there's like seven, you know, brown Muslim dudes on a corner that are about to cause trouble. I'm like, dude, I'm kind of from this world. Like, they're just, you know, they're not, they're, they're, they're doing something that, that I, I, I have a sense of what they're doing and it's not trouble. Do you see what I mean? Like, that was really interesting to me to be like, how is it that I, I from Chicago, I'm willing to like cast judgment on a, on a, uh, a culture that I don't know that much about, as opposed to reading a writer who, with whom I might disagree, but who I admire, whose intellect I admire, who's saying, I have a different, I have a different uh, feel for this community than you do. That doesn't mean he's right, but shouldn't it be a voice in my head? Uh, thank you all again for coming to speak to us. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the role that interfaith families play in a pluralistic society. Um, so my question, and I would like to define interfaith more broadly. So Dr. Patel, you describe your family as three quarters of Smiley, one quarter uh, Sunni Muslim with your spouse being Sunni. Um, so Barry, you're my nephew. You could call me Ibu man. Sure, what's up? <laughs> um, so... I mean, I was just wondering what you guys think the current challenges interfaith families face are uh, and how interfaith families contribute to uh, pluralism in our society and how they improve it and make it better. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Um, and I, I think that they, are, that they are good for pluralism in the relationships across difference and in the getting to know people from a different background, I think that it's very challenging when it comes to the continuity of an identity community. I go to Jamath Khanna with my kids less because my wife is not an Ismaili. And I go to her, her parents who, uh, it's harder for them to involve, and her extended family, to involve our whole family in broader South Asian Sunni things because of my Ismaili identity. Right? It, just, it is the content pluralism. And I, I think this is, is one of the things that, that like, you, you have to stare in the face. Pluralism is a challenge to the continuity of identity communities. And in our world, continuity of identity communities is connected to salvation, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's, I think it's really important, like, will my kids, will my grandkids cook and love the same food? Not that I cook anything, but I sure love food, right? But, but like, will, will they carry on the same cultural practices that I do? Yeah, that, that's important, but getting to heaven in our world matters a lot more, right? And so pluralism is a challenge to the continuity of identity communities. And guess what? There's, there's no other, like, good luck finding a cave in the world where you're going to be able to separate your kids from all other identities. Mm -hmm. so, you, you, so this is the world that we have, and you have to um, make it work, both the challenges and reap the harvest of, of the beauties of pluralism, right? So I love that, that my kids feel, you know, I didn't, I, didn't, I probably didn't hear the word salam alaikum until I was 16 years old. 
I probably didn't enter a masjid until Oxford, right? And I love that my kids feel relatively comfortable in both places. You know, I love that they are more, if not fluent, at least literate with the breadth of the Muslim tradition. I think what's interesting about your example, too, is it's kind of the limit principle of what all of us are trying to figure out in the American experiment. So if we, if we leave aside the difficult question of interfaith marriage and just think about close friendships, would it not be better if all of us had both close friendships within faith and close interfaith friendships? And so I think, for, you know, for, I sometimes talk to Christian students who are, you know, fill their weeks with seven Bible studies and, and have all Christian friends, which is probably not great for understanding how to live in a diverse society with people of other faiths. And then conversely, if all you're doing is being out there and you don't have any kind of a faith community to help you with your practices, you're, you're erring too far in the other direction and pluralism becomes really the God you serve in some ways. And so I think the, I think the best practice might be in close personal relationships. Can you work to have both in different contexts? And, and probably for each of us, that challenge is going to be harder in one direction or the other. Thank you guys again. I think one thing that uh, both of you mentioned was kind of we don't need to accept or tolerate Nazis uh, in kind of the context of pluralism. And my question was, what about like kind of the spectrum to becoming Nazis? You know, I think a perfect example is uh, inviting or the kind of invitation to Stephen Bannon last year to speak here. And like, you know, we might people, different people might have different lines to drawing, like what's acceptable and what's not. Yeah, so a couple of thoughts there. One, what I, what I wanted to say and what I just want to reinforce is, again, I think from a, from a Christian theological premise, if every single human being is created in the image of God, that means actually that line is not one that we can draw. I, I'm saying I personally find it very hard to think about befriending a Nazi, maybe just because it doesn't sound like a good use of my time, but I'm... Some, in some ways, <laughs> I'm in some ways inspired by the people who do, and there are stories of right Nazis who change their views, and I think that's a good a net gain for the world when you have one less Nazi who's changed his views about human beings. Um, but uh, but it is it is a hard question, practically speaking, about how you uh, how you move toward friendship or relationship, uh, or how you start to endorse or privilege something. So I would say this is a bit unrelated, but it's maybe a point worth making. I think in the university context, if you want a wide range of thoughtful commentators across an ideological spectrum, there are a ton of people out there, right? On any issue, I can, we, we can collectively point you to all those people, and you don't actually need to go to the bomb throwers or the people who are so outlandish that you invite simply to make a scene or to get publicity or something like that. So I think in college campuses today when you hear kind of stories over and over again of people who are either because their content or their presentation and delivery is so far afield from what most of us would consider any kind of academic norm, I think the real response there is just to ask ourselves as an academic community, what are those people actually contributing to our discourse? And if you want to have a robust debate about immigration or mass incarceration or something else, then, then bring thoughtful people to have that debate on academic terms. But I don't think we need to I don't think we need to kind of uh, head toward the path of Nazism to have sort of academic freedom uh, thrive. In, in the world that I am in, um, uh, so Martin Marty uh, uh, said in, a, in the beginning of his book, When Fates Collide, said that uh, European mapmakers 
uh, in the Middle Ages, they would, they would have maps where they would put Europe unsurprisingly at the center, and everywhere else they would draw the words, here be monsters, right? And I actually think that that's a greater, that is the bigger problem than the danger of, of um, a Nazi winding up at your dinner table is imagining monsters where they don't exist. Right? And, and, and I would, just like I believe in innocent until proven guilty, which is to say that every once in a while a guilty person gets, I would rather live in a system where every once in a while a guilty person gets let, let go rather than an innocent person put into jail, which is obviously not the system we live in, but that's the ideal. Beyond a reasonable doubt, innocent until proven guilty, right? I would rather assume you're a good dude and you wind up being a Nazi than assume you're a Nazi and you wind up just having some differences with me. And I think we live in a world right now where we're pretty quick to assume that folks are Nazis. And I, I think that that is probably, in the worlds in which I live, that's the single biggest threat to diverse democracy is the quickness by which we're like, uh, two wrong moves and you're a Nazi, right? It's, I, I think that that's craziness, right? Um, I'm about, to, you know, I'm toying with writing a piece uh, 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 titled, is this, is this the Van Jones era, right? So Van Jones, um, Van Jones could have been the Luke Skywalker of the resistance, right? Y'all know who I'm talking about, right? So, so, um, you know, he's been, he's been on the kind of political and civic activist scene for 25 years. He starts an activist organization in Oakland 25 years ago, which, which is about police misconduct and wrongful, wrongful uh, incarceration, et cetera, et cetera. He becomes a CNN commentator about 10 years ago. Hal happens to be a personal friend, so I know some of the background of this. And uh, in election day, he, you look this up on YouTube, he gives like the most famous three-minute speech uh, that month where he's basically like, you know, you teach your kids to be nice, you teach your kids to be fair, and then this guy goes ahead and wins, right? So Van Jones is all set up literally to be the Luke Skywalker of the resistance, right? Like fist in the air, leading, leading the charge. And uh, instead, he's spent a lot of time behind the scenes putting together uh, a criminal reform bill with the Koch Brothers Network. Right? So is it the case that like, what we ought to be doing is not finding ways in which our disagreements make me think of you as a monster, but instead finding ways to bracket disagreement and find common ground and get things done? Right? And will we look back on this era and think to ourselves, the people with their fists in the air, you know, saying, uh, uh, if you deny my humanity, I write you off the planet kind of stuff, right? That, that, that they're the people who, who really threatened a diverse democracy and the people who are like, you know what? In this crazy polarized time, I'm gonna find ways to work with people with whom I can't stand on most things, right? But we're gonna get this done together. That's, you know, it feels to me like that, that is a big part of what pluralism requires is those kinds of folks. So unfortunately, I think She's had our up forever. <laughs> time is out. Uh, do we have time for a final question? No? We have uh, unfortunately, we have run out of time. Um, I would say that I myself have learned a lot from this discussion and this event. And uh, there are certainly, it seems to me, some disagreement about how to understand pluralism, but also a common 
message, which as I interpret it, is the fact that pluralism, we can you know, not wait for institution or politics to create pluralism for us, but pluralism is at the end of the day a daily achievement mm. that happens also through the cultivation of individual interactions and virtues, including adaptation and a certain kind of modesty. So I would uh, like to invite you to join me to thank our speakers and uh, thank you very much. And would you join me in giving one more round of applause to our presenters and our moderator for tonight's discussion.